How's everybody doing? You guys are looking like beautiful people of the Spirit. I like it. So um, I do and I have done a lot of prophesying in my lifetime, but I am 30 years or so later into it, firmly convinced that every single person in this room ought to prophesy better than I do. I believe that I'm really learning how to shut out the noise right now. And God's saying, no, I'm kidding. Um, but, but understand that uh, the Lord never really wanted us to be wowed and dazzled by someone's gifts. In turn, those who are the most gifted, i.e. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 ministry gifts, they only really have a right to exist in as much as they are equipping you to do what they do. Now, we may not always do it by the same grace or in the same context, but whoever that prophetic voice is, as an example, that, that you just run to their conference or whatever, um, and excited about getting a word, understand that the Lord wants to empower you to prophesy to the body. Y you know, can I, I don't even know why I'm saying this, but it's not even in my notes. You're getting this for free. But I just want to encourage you guys tonight that, that if the gifts of the Spirit were really operating at the level that I believe the Lord wants them to, Prophets really wouldn't be that big of a deal. I believe that is largely God's design. It's not to minimize who they are. It is to help you to understand who you are. And so one of the things that I, I really love and value about Heart of the Father is we believe one of the things that is in the Father's heart is for you to step into everything that the Father sp speaks over you and dreamed about you. And we, all of us, I believe, the DNA of this church is to ensure, this ecclesia rather, to ensure that you step into the fullness, everything that God intended for you to have, and not necessarily leave you dependent on the ministries of others. We want you to be a functioning body. We want you to be a fully equipped believer, whereas Colossians says you are into the fullness, you're encountering what the fullness is, and you're not lacking anything. And so the best gifts, the best personalities in the kingdoms are the ones that don't use you to build ministries and buy books and go to conferences and all that kind of stuff. They're the ones that have the heart to equip you into your fullness and see you walk into it. So tonight and in these eight next eight weeks, the goal isn't necessarily to wow you with gifts, and I don't think that's why any of you are here anyway, but the goal is to really get you functioning at as high a capacity as you possibly can, and to give you what the Holy Spirit has made available to you. But now in order to do that tonight, I'm going to, what I'm going to do, um, let me just give you a preview, that way you'll know exactly where we're going. So tonight's probably going to be 
the heaviest teaching night where we, I want to really lay a strong foundation for what's getting ready to come in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I'm, we're, we're going to do this tonight in two parts. The first part is not in your book. And I, if you want, I'll give you my notes later. I'll make them available to Brandon or whoever. Or I can shoot them to you in an email. That way you have them and you don't have to necessarily be focused on writing every single thing down that I say. Part two, I'm going to pick up in a section in this manual. But if you have sat under my teaching in the past, here's how I do things. I always like to do manuals, and they're complete, and there's a lot of stuff in them. And I do that so I don't have to feel the necessity to cover all of it in each session. So you're going to have everything I would have teached in three hours. But I only really get not even close to an hour. So I'm going to focus on and let the Lord lead me and direct me where I feel like he wants us to go. But no, you've got it all right here as if I would have taught, you know, taught it. The only difference is you may not necessarily get all the stories, but you have the meat of it. And so I would encourage you to take this and to go back through, read the scriptures, read through it, meditate on it. And the goal isn't to just hear something and add to your accumulation of knowledge. The goal is something that's practicable, practical and something that you can apply and take action on in your life. All right? Is that a deal? So tonight, what I want to do is I want to lead you down a path this, this evening, and by the end of the session tonight, I, 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 wanna, I feel like the Lord wants us to get some deliverance. All right? So what better way to start a whole eight weeks on the spirit or spirituals or the gifts of the spirit than to get free to shut out all the noise and to build this thing on the right foundation so i want to make a statement to you and uh, a few disclaimers uh whatever messes i make barry will clean them up so so don't get nervous it's all good uh and um Brandon's got his Gucci shades on. So, oh, oh, no, wait a minute. Where are they? Oh. Wait, did you give those back, brother? Oh. All right, so anyway, but tonight, I want to say, I want you to focus really quickly um, with me, and I want to make a statement that I'm just going to tell you up front is intended to be provocative. So that statement is this. Anytime God is doing a work, and let's focus it, here at heart of the father in the work of heart of the father the greatest threat to this work and to what god is doing is not directly posed by the forces of darkness because he's already triumphed over that that our foe is defeated in the sense of the finished work that he accomplished in fact colossians says he made a spectacle of them at the cross the greatest threat anytime the Spirit of God begins to move and originate something is the institutional mindsets that the people bring into it. So in one sense, you and I are the greatest threat to the work of God in as much as we bring the Spirit of the world into it. So the goal in all of our lives is to allow God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of truth to go forth and we receive it and we allow it to displace the spirit of the world in us. 
So we're going to talk quite a bit about that tonight and to lay a foundation for that. But understand that as I say that, anything that God would want to accomplish at heart of the Father is going to require me to become delivered and free of the spirit of the world that would actually seek to oppose it. All right, now don't worry, I'm not going to beat you up, but I'm going to speak some truth that is intended to really set us on a pathway and to lay a foundation where I believe the gifts of the Spirit can operate in order and in the right place in the kingdom culture that God's calling us to live out of, all right? So understand that what we really have in the body is what I call, what we all call, is a crisis of identity. Let me say it to you this way, that the moment God took you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light, i.e., how did he do that? He caused by his Father you to begin to believe and receive a revelation or a testimony of the Son of God that only the Father can put in your heart. And from that rock, so to speak, of revelation, you are transplanted out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. Positionally, He put you in the right place with God and He, and he removed your body, in a sense, out of one kingdom and put your body, in a sense, in another. He def- and and, and, and the, the change was so dramatic That 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Greek word metamorphos, new creation, it's so dramatic that it is now appropriate to call you a completely different species as the one that you started with when God found you. It's that real. The cross is that real. But what ends up happening is he sets us into position into the new place, but we bring with us all of the value systems and the operating systems that we left behind in the world. And here here is both the complexity and the wonderful thing about God is that in order to, He liberates our body, but you and I have to partner with Him to liberate our minds. And so what we begin to do is we begin to allow the Lord, what should happen is we allow the Lord to set us in place among the people of God, and in that context, what begins to happen is the Lord immediately begins to go to work in your life by putting you into an identity crisis. Do you understand that your identity crisis or your wrestle for identity is initiated by God? And the reason why is because in as much as there is a value system that operates in me that is authored out of the world, I'm immediately in crisis because I am now a part of a kingdom that I don't yet have a value system for. And so... What God does is He sets you into a body, a supernatural organism where Jesus is the head, 
And in that body, the supply of the body begins to flow to every single one of the body. And one of the greatest outflows of that experience is you get a place in a supernatural context to take your identity crisis. You get, an, you get an opportunity to begin to wrestle and allow the Lord's value system through the truth of the Word to begin to confront the demonic value systems that you came into the kingdom with, and God gets to win. But what ends up happening is the power of the body is such that when he builds it, and this is why in a lot of, in a lot of situations I find the need to use the word institutionalism because institutionalism is the demonic substitute for the body or a supernatural ecclesia, the Greek word for church that's often mistranslated as church. But what ends up happening is he's calling us to a supernatural entity where inside of that entity as we connect and allow God to set us, the supply from heaven begins to flow toward us to bring us out of our identity crisis and into a fully emerged and developed kingdom citizen that is living out of God's value system and no longer a part of the world's. But we have to understand something. If we go all the way back, and let me take you to a quick tour to just put this into perspective for you. What the garden showed us was two powerful things. We could maybe look at it this way, that God on one hand says, I offer you the opportunity, if you'll allow me to take a little bit of creative license tonight, God offers the opportunity, and in Adam and Eve's place, let's put ourselves there for a minute. God offers us the opportunity in the garden, and he says, you can live out of the tree of life, but what that means is, my life becomes the source of your life, and in receiving that, I reserve the right to define what is good and evil and what is right and wrong, and you simply trust that I will define it for you rightly. And so God offers us a divine, supernatural flow. If life was a substance that was tangible that we could see, and it is, and God can see it, we just can't see it with the human eye. But that supernatural life originates out of God, and it began to feed Adam and Eve to the point where they were sustained by the life of God as represented in the image of the tree of life. But yet, there also existed in the garden a tree of knowledge that was an alternate lifestyle, so to speak, in that Adam and Eve, this tree was off limits to them. And we could, for the sake of this discussion, define that tree this way, that if the right way is for me to live out of God in a trust as God is my source and as my source he provides for me and he defines what's right and wrong and as long as I submit to him I receive him as the source of life and I'm not my source then the tree of knowledge would be the exact opposite knowledge is the antithesis of life God offers life 
But in humanism, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we would eat of that fruit, and we know the story Adam and Eve did, and in so doing, they said, you are no longer the source, I am my own source, and I live by the knowledge that I acquire. Because think about it this way, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at least half of the tree was good, right? So why wouldn't we think that in one sense, um, at least part of the tree would be good and God should be okay with it. It's only one half of that tree that's evil that God shouldn't be okay with. But the problem isn't as much good and evil as much as it is who is our source and the fact that knowledge will only ever be a substitute for the life that God supplies. I've come that they might have what? Life. And have it more abundantly. So if I could frame the, the discussion this way, uh, again, I, I'm not going to be able to do all this, uh, the justice it deserves, because each one of these points you could probably spend the whole night on. I'll leave it up to the theologian to do that. But what I will do to get me where I want to go tonight is to realize that one of the greatest dilemmas it's personified as sin, but the biggest problem with sin outside of the fact that it's disobedience is sin has me as my own source. And what the law and what God began to do through the law is he had to show me just how terrible my sin is. And so what you see then are really once Adam and Eve took that bite of that fruit and they disobeyed God, they cut themselves off from the life of God and were now reduced to living out of what they themselves knew. That knowledge. And the result is humanism was born. Now why is that such a big deal? Because humanism is what authors and is the impetus behind the spirit of the world. Think about everything that's in operation in the world today has been engineered out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil through human agency empowered and set on fire by hell. So understand that the best, and man is capable of some fairly decent things, but the value system that drives man outside of God can only at its best create a tower of Babel and never be able to produce anything that God is looking for that's righteous and that is kingdom and worthy of His stature. And so what ends up happening is humanism, in effect, becomes the opposite of everything. And to make it really, to help you get this sink in, you needed to understand that apart from God, humanity fell to the uttermost possible dimension that we could fall to. Like, the, like if we could measure it somehow, we would literally fall to the uttermost bottom that we could possibly fall. And why do I know that? Genesis, right before the flood, he says to Noah, but the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their mind was only evil all the time. Think about that. Psalm 51.5 says, Look, I was guilty, David said, as he's lamenting his own sin. He says, Look, I was guilty 
of sin from birth, a sinner the moment my mother conceived me. Isaiah told us that we are all like one who's unclean. Our so-called righteous acts are like a menstrual rag in your sight. And we all wither like a leaf and our sins carry us away like the wind. That's what the power of human agency produces. And then he goes on to say one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. In Romans 8, verse 5, he says, For those who live according to the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is the ultimate experience or expression of humanism. Humanism is the ultimate expression of what it's like to be completely devoid of God. And so what ends up happening, he says, for the flesh, they have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. In other words, our flesh is shaped by the value systems and the revelation knowledge that came out of that tree. And it's shaped by a humanistic reason that literally twists and warps our mind. Now, I'm going to get to some good news. Don't get all depressed on me yet. I'm going to lead you out of here. All right, but here's the thing. He said, but those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. Here's the good news. In the world, you know, recently I was, had an occasion to grieve because um, we lost someone that was very dear to us. And the day into, one day into the grieving, I heard the Holy Spirit quote to me out of Thessalonians, where he said, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. That even in our grief that we go through, there is always hope right in the middle of it. But understand that what that statement says is those who are without God grieve with no hope. And so in the process of um, this, verse 7 says, because the outlook of the flesh is not only just a bad worldview, it's hostility to God. My fleshly outlook to the place where I embrace the world's value, it is openly hostile and warring against God's values. And so what ends up happening is, in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now in context, what he's talking about, those who are completely living in in the world system and who have not been brought into the kingdom of God. It is impossible for anyone, and, and the, the greatest manifestation of those who are in the flesh cannot please God appears in Mark where Scripture records that groups of people were doing all the things that Christians can do, yet he never knew them. That even in the behavior of, of mimicking and doing things and behaviors that Christians can do, it is entirely possible for God not to know you. This is why, in my opinion, institutionalism is such a powerful thing because people can sit in church for years and never be saved. And I would argue, not for the sake of just merely being provocative, but I would argue that, that really in this day and age that we sit right now, perhaps one of the greatest mission fields in the earth is actually right in the church. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
the person does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is your life because of righteousness. Moreover, if the Spirit of the One who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the One who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive through His Spirit who lives in you. So let me talk a few seconds for about the kingdom of the world. The ultimate expression of what was produced when Adam and Eve took that fruit was humanism. Everything in this world has largely, that has been authored by the world system, has largely been authored in such a way that it is temporal, and at its ultimate core, it cannot and does not and will never have the potential to reflect God's values. That is why, in one sense, when the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5.17, He had to make you a new creation because the old one wasn't really that redeemable. He had to crush it, get rid of it, send it to a cross, and raise you to new life. And to help you understand it, He literally says you were born again and raised to life as a completely brand new, different person. But in the process of that, what we understand perhaps is the ultimate expression of the kingdom of the world, we can see but a glimpse of it when by the Spirit, Jesus is led into the wilderness and Satan reveals what I think uh, is really the three pillars of humanism and he begins to tempt Jesus with it, thereby exposing what the value systems of the world are that most likely is in every single one of us until the Holy Spirit, through truth and His Spirit, drives it out. Okay? The first thing in Matthew 4, and I'm not going to run through all these, He says, command these stones to be bread. And what was He doing? He was exposing that the outward working of, of a humanistic flesh is, in fact, the lust of the flesh. That in the value system of the world, I sought what I wanted, I became my own God, and I lived to fulfill my own appetites any way that I wanted. The lust of the flesh. I lived to feed that flesh hunger in me. Yet Jesus took what? The opposite approach. And out of Deuteronomy, He quotes, but man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, the flesh or the tree of knowledge I live simply by feeding my natural appetite. But yet, what he does live is by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus, as our champion and our victor, immediately overcomes one of the most powerful dilemmas of humanism and by the power of the Spirit corrects it and, and, and wins a victory over it that you and I never could but we step into that victory in as much as we are authentically joined to Christ through salvation. All right? The second pillar is throw yourself down if you truly are the Son of God. Because doesn't he say the angels are going to, he's going to give the angels charge over you? So what does he do? He tempts Jesus with the second pillar of humanism, which is the pride of life. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The second one is the pride of life. It's in the pride of life that in humanism we substitute 
ego and we substitute a drive to get on top. We substitute all of these things for the identity. We live out of the identity that the first orphan passes to us. But God calls us through salvation into the identity that the second Adam passes to us. And in the pride of life, I would lift myself up. I would think of myself more highly than I ought. And out of my pride, I would seek to control and dominate others. And so, the most perfect manifestation of humanism even comes in the carnal or the earthly idea of what leadership is because through humanistic leadership, I would rule and I would dominate you. Yet, in Jesus' response to that, in Deuteronomy, he says he abused, essentially, he refused to abuse his own power. He, Philippians says he refused and thought it not acceptable or beneficial to compare or consider himself as God or equal to God, yet he takes on the form of a servant. And so what does Jesus do when he comes to the earth? He doesn't come as a conquering king. He comes as a suffering servant. And he says to you and I that in order to live out of God's values, we have to turn our back on the world system and its leadership that would seek to dominate you and rule over you. And instead, just like he did, we become your servant. All leadership in the kingdom is authentic in as much as you are, you are serving. If another person's leadership, this is for free by the way, has you serving them, that's not quite the same idea because leaders in God's kingdom only get the right to lead as they demonstrate servant and they walk in the servanthood that Jesus did. He modeled what leadership is. Yet, in every single kingdom reality, there is a counterfeit that's authored by the flesh. So moving on, in Matthew 4, the really big one, the lust of the eyes. So the three pillars of humanism, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, I will give you all these things if you will bow down and worship me and why is it the lust of the eyes? Because I want what I want, I covet what I want, and I'll do anything to get what I want. Yet Jesus comes in the opposite spirit, empowered by heaven, led by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He was able to overcome the lust of the eyes, the spirit way. I like the way Luke says this. He says in Luke 4, Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, to you, I will grant this whole realm, everything that you can see and the glory that goes along with it. For it has been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you will worship me, all this will be yours. And so, in humanism, is formed within me the desire to get what I want at any expense. And Jesus took the opposite spirit 
and he overcame it, thereby giving us the power to overcome it through the power of the Spirit. Are you with me still? So I know this is heavy, but I'm getting to the good stuff. So Colossians 1 says it this way, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance in light. Verse 13, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and He's transferred us into the kingdom of His Son whom He loves. 1 Peter, one of my favorites, says it this way, Verses 4 through 11, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, chosen and precious in God's sight, the suffering servant, not the conquering king, you yourselves as living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. For it says in Scripture, Look, I lay in Zion a stone. A chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, in verse 7, you who believe see his value, but those who don't believe, this is the stone the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone, a stumbling block or a rock that they trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you, verse 9, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people because you belonged to the kingdom of the world. But now we are a people and he's transplanted us into the kingdom of light. So let me just really briefly say a few things about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Jesus says in John 18, my kingdom is not from this world. He says, if my kingdom were from the world, then my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. One of the most powerful statements in the Bible. Then Pilate said, so, you are a king. And Jesus says, well, you say that I'm a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Let me say that again. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens for my voice and to my voice. And Pilate says something profound. What is truth? The kingdom of, the, of God, in one sense then, is the antithesis to the kingdom of humanism in every way. Left to our own devices, we corrupted everything that God created and, 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 and the potential for evil became realized by the work of our hand. The greatest capacity for it wasn't even in the imagination there was no imagination left humanity did it all yet the opposite is true of of god's kingdom john 16 i've told you these things so that you might have peace why because in the world in the present kingdom that you are living in you will have trouble and suffering but take courage i have overcome the world and how did he do that 
He didn't bring a sword. He didn't overthrow. He took the values of heaven, and he, in every way that we failed, achieved the victory to show us and to help us to step into God's value system in the kingdom. That's why when you see God's kingdom, you hear this said a lot, it's an upside-down kingdom. The world says leaders. God says servants. The world says conquer with the sword. Jesus came as the prince of peace. The world says um, scratch and claw and be driven by ambition where Jesus comes in and says look out for the poor and blessed are the poor in spirit. So in every way, Jesus conquers the kingdom of the world, but not as a conqueror through violence. He overcame it by living out the realities and the value systems of the kingdom of heaven. And he literally overcomes every single work of humanity authored by demons. And, and when he came into the ultimate consummation of that, when he died and was rose again, the Bible says that he rose not only having conquered and overcome humanity, he went and plundered hell and came out with the keys and he built his church on top of it. So what we have to understand, now what does all this have to do with the gifts? I'm going to say one last thing and then I'm going to make a few closing statements and I'll end here. But we're all excited about the bride right now. And may I offer you something that goes right along with what I'm saying tonight, and that is this, that we only discover the bride by becoming the body. Understand that when Jesus says he is preparing for him a bride without spot or wrinkle, how do you think that happens? That happens because you get into the body with all your spots and all your wrinkles, and the person sitting next to you that irritates you to no end helps you start shaking out those wrinkles. That's as real as I can make it. So in the body, we only step into, we understand that we're betrothed. Paul said, I, only, I, I betrothed you, right? But in that betrothal, understand that we come into our identity as a bride, not by sitting around and going to conferences and talking about it. We do it because we allow the Lord to set us into a body. And as I learn how to love you, God puts the revelation in me of what it means to be the bride of Christ because I'm being transformed into the same values that he lives by. So if we want the bride... Don't chase the bride, chase the body right now. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I'm saying just because you read a book about bridal paradigms or whatever else is not near as potent as the power to step into and allow the Lord to put you in a real functioning spiritual body where the supply of God as the head is moving through all of the individual parts and that revelation that Jesus reveals begins to move throughout the entire body because the body is connected and it has a clear circulatory system to move revelation through it and to move the character of Christ through it. And I will submit to you that there is a maturity according to the measure and the stature of Christ that Ephesians talks about that you cannot enter into without the body. It is impossible. And I know and that might be kind of chafing some, but understand that if you fail to allow the Lord to set you into the body, you do so at the cost of your own maturity. This is why... 
coming back to my original statement, and let me define some things for you, the greatest threat against this body is the institutional value systems of the world that I bring into it. Now let me give you a couple examples of what those are. For instance, why am I why why am I putting the target on institutional? I'm not mad at you. I love what God man, I'm my whole life has been spent strengthening the work of God in his ecclesia. But what would happen as a substitute is people would come in, they would see and discern an institution and never actually find the body. And you know what that looks like? They go to church every week, but aren't really functioning as the church. They would see, and I believe Barry talked a little bit about this Sunday, they would see church and what we do, the building, as something that supplements their life. They become the ultimate American version of the consumer where I'm going to go to the church that has the most superior religious product that I can purchase with my tithes and my attendance because after all, I'm really doing you a favor to show up to hear, to listen to you preach, right? And why in the world would you ask me to serve in the nursery? I'm here, you're here to serve me. I'm not here to serve you, right? And so what happens is the institutional mindset is going to be the very thing that will keep you out of the body but always in church. Now I can say this because I'm not really part of this, so you can get mad at me all you want and the elders can deal with it later. But, but the thing is, is what I'm trying to say to you this evening is that you're not earning anything or really doing anything by simply going to a church service. You guys realize that, right? Now, now I'd rather you be sitting here than in a bar somewhere or just absolutely... Uh, filling every one of your fleshly appetites. But if I go sit in my garage, that doesn't make me a car, right? And so the idea is the institutional mindset or the value systems, the spirit of the world, manifestation of that institutional mindset will have me going to an institution but never coming into a revelation of the supernatural body that's housed within it. And so what you really have are the true ecclesia, that gathering at heart of the Father. And again, I don't say this to be mean, but it's that gathering at heart of the Father that really is a body, and then you got other people orbiting around the outside of it. It's like they're in orbit. If the sun is the church and all these other planets are just kind of orbiting around, but they're really not getting into, they're, they're receiving, they're experiencing what the sun produces. The biggest example of that is Allison gets up and leads and people experience what she's doing and think they're actually worshiping. Another sermon Randy wants to preach. But, but my, my thing that I want to say to you is, when Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my ecclesia, what he was actually saying he was building was a people that at the end of everything as we know it will stand before the Lord from every tongue, tribe, and nation in this planet as the redeemed, and he will demonstrate along with Israel 
and along with everyone else, create one new man, one new people, and the ultimate manifestation of that will be we will be one bride that is betrothed and married and fully consummated to our bridegroom, Yeshua. But what has to happen in that process is we have to become matured, and the way that that happens is in the local ecclesia, which is really both a body that's living, a building, or a spiritual house, or a spiritual temple, and a bride, and I could even add a fourth, we're a family just because the family component helps us understand how we relate to one another. I heard a pastor say one time, one of the most ridiculous things you could ever say is running around calling each other brother. Why not? That's the way the Lord wants us to relate to one another. That keeps me from trying to set myself up in a place of elitism over you, and it reminds us all that we are interconnected as brothers and sisters in Christ before we are anything else. In quality, we're 100% the same. In function, we're not. We all have different jobs to do in the kingdom, so to speak, or different functions, but it doesn't make us any better than one another. It just means we're simply doing a different function in the body to make it work than you are. And every part of that body function is needed. So wrapping that up, Ephesians says this. One of my most favorite chapters in the Bible And I would encourage you to take some time, break open Ephesians chapter 2, and stay there for a long time. Like, get that deep in your spirit. Memorize it, learn how to quote it from memory, and really let the Lord hide the truth of what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. But I'm going to say this to you, that verse 2, and although you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you formerly lived according what? to the the world system's present path according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. And I'm going to skip down to verse 11 of Ephesians 2. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called quote-unquote circumcision that is being performed on the body by human hands, so that you were at that time without the Messiah alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You don't have to agree to walk in unity. You have to discern the blood of Christ. The basis of our agreement doesn't really depend on you agreeing with my doctrinal idolatry. What brings us into oneness is Jesus redeemed us all the same way and no one in this room is any better than anyone else. We all come into the same way. We're all baptized in the same Spirit. And then in verse 18, 
so that through him, as we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, verse 21, in him the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, I feel like I'm only going to do six closings tonight. I would ordinarily do ten. So, but here's number one. All right, but here's the thing that I want to help you to understand. And I, I, I do understand that I'm running the risk at preaching to the choir because you're here. And the ones that probably most need to hear this next part aren't here. But what I want to convince you of is this. That the eternal purpose of God that the Father is executing through the ecclesia, the people of God in every generation, yet those people called into assembly locally, meaning we're not just a part of some universal invisible church. It means that when, when, when every writer in Scripture speaks of ecclesia or church, he speaks of it in the local context, and even in Revelation, he talks to the ecclesiae, the plural, meaning all of the local churches that he was talking about in that passage. So what that means is we express and we function in the context of a local body of people that God sets us into. Now notice, I'm intentionally staying away from the word church, because to most people, church is the institution, not the people. If this building went away, you would be no less the ecclesia at heart of the Father. This building is more or less convenient, and that's about all it is. And, I, and these guys probably disagree because they're paying the mortgage, maybe somewhat. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is your identity has zero to do with where we meet. You could just as much be heart of the Father meeting out in a park, theoretically, uh, you know, with some contingencies there. But what I'm trying to say to you is that we are a people, God calls us to a people, and it's in the context of those people that are in order with Jesus as the head, with, with the leadership structure operating the way God intended it to be. God sets us into a people, closing one, God sets us into a people where we can immediately begin to wrestle through our identity crisis that's initiated by the Lord. And what the identity crisis is, circling all the way back around to where I started, is to the degree that I have value systems that are operated, that are authored out of the world, those value systems immediately put me in crisis with the new one that I'm living in. I, in my fear would want to control you. And the world can't do anything about fear because it is a condition that is only cured by the presence of God-originated love 
that takes root in your life. The world cannot produce that. The only thing the world system can do is help you manage it by humanistic techniques. Whereas the Bible says that where there is fear, what? Perfect love casts it out or displaces it. So I don't need to run around rebuking fear. I need to recognize where fear is present, where love should be. If I want to get rid of fear, or if I'm a person that I'm afraid about everything, and I weaponize my fear against you, what I'm doing in the body is I'm becoming that threat that is seeking to weaponize my emotions being authored out of the spirit of the world to try to come against and thwart. Now this happens daily. Now God's not nervous about that, by the way. But I can tell you, in my short years of uh, being in the ministry, I've seen many a church fall due to some very humanistic uh, crises and fights that ended up toppling the whole thing. And so what I'm saying to you is what God does is He brings you into heart of the Father. Let's talk about you. And immediately, He sets the stage for that war to begin to take place in you so that God, who's already conquered the world on the outside can conquer your inner world on the inside. And so where this comes down to in the gifts of the Spirit, understand that in God's economy, when He sets us into a body, it's not just about what I bring to it. And that's a big thing. It's also about what I receive through it. And understanding that three men who operate as elders, it is not possible for them to effectively shepherd this entire body. They wouldn't even have enough time in the week necessarily to be able to, at the level everyone needs it, be there to counsel us through every single situation. But that's not God's design anyway. The shepherding spirit that's upon them, they begin to release into the body, and the body begins to shepherd, in a sense, one another. That supply begins to operate. You begin to, be, you begin to bring that supply. But in the institutional mindset, if all I do is come and consume, and I never discern that there's a body part missing unless I allow myself to be set into place, not into a position, not into a title, but into a spiritual function. I'll get into a little bit of that next week. But what I want to say tonight, and, 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 and really I will conclude here, and we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll summarize next week and really get into a lot of understanding and revelation that God's been giving me about the body. But what the Lord is calling you for, what He's calling you into right now, is may I, may I challenge you by the authority of the Holy Spirit to come out of the institution and actually join the body. May I, may I submit to you that when you said yes to Jesus, you actually gave up your right to tell Him no to everything else. May I submit to you that you don't really love God as you emotionally think you do until you've learned how to love the people He loves. That the greatest measure of the first commandment, my love to God, is expressed in my submission to the second commandment, loving my neighbor as myself.
And so in the context of the body, God brings me into an identity crisis where I immediately begin to see how fickle and inadequate my human capacity to love you really is. But as I submit and yield to the Holy Spirit and I allow the love of God to begin to do its perfect work as I'm rooted and grounded in love, what begins to take place is I acquire the capacity to supernaturally love you the way God does. Now that doesn't happen in a day. As Barry says all the time, you got to be patient. It doesn't happen all in a minute. But what we have to understand is that when you entered into the kingdom through that same testimony that Peter had, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, God expects for us to grow that same revelation and mature it and one of the primary ways he does is he gives us the opportunity to practice it on each other. So the gifts come into place when we begin to realize they're not optional, they're not great conference material, they're not great number one bestsellers on Amazon, they're not great, and I don't prophesy for love, I prophesy out of love, I prophesy from love, I don't whip out the word of knowledge because I'm looking for you to give me something that I lacked in my childhood. I'm, I'm, oper I'm operating in every gift of the Holy Spirit because I'm coming into a revelation of what it really means to love that David Vestman. It's really hard to do that, but I'm coming into that. No, I'm kidding. I'm coming into that revelation, and through my understanding and how God is teaching me to love you well, the gifts will begin to operate as the byproduct. Now, I took an hour to explain to you Pursue love, but desire spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14. But if you begin to understand that the gifts have zero to do about your identity, because your value comes from God, not what you do for Him. Right? But when I begin to understand that God is positioning me next to the person next to you, next to the person behind you and potentially in front of you, and he's positioning you in a body where his spirit is calling you and admonishing you to love that person well, those people well. And in so doing, so understand that the, the Bible talks a lot about the poor, but understand it's not just people who have empty checking accounts. The poor m means a lot of different things. And we can, we can explain it this way, that the poor are people who have no stature. They're, they're outcasts in just about every way. And conceptually, the poor should not exist within the body. 1 Corinthians 12 defines it this way, the least of these. This is one of Barry's champion verses. That, that, the, the, that ones that the world, not God, right? The world would define through its value system, you're a least of these because of some worldly value that I attribute to you. But yet the ones that God, that the world would say you're the least of these, God gives them a place of double honor because in the body, we don't define people that way. We define them by what God says about them, not the world. So because of that, we have to treat and we have to learn how to love well every single person and the house that's full of gifts is still out of order if it isn't first full of the love of God that is operating and manifesting through people for one another. And I really will close with this. As Barry said it um, Sunday, this house does love well. 
I mean, we got here in a flash, and we just appeared out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, my wife and I feel like we've been loved well. I mean, we have zero complaints at all. Now, Brandon, I think, could do a little better, but we're going to help him with that, right? Everybody say, Brandon, do a better job loving Derek. <laughs> no, I'm good. I hate, so I want to I encourage you with the I love you, brother. <laughs> You're awesome. So, I, so as a foundation for the gifts, here's what I want to do tonight. Will you come help us shut out some more noise? What I want to challenge you into tonight is, if you would allow me to define it this way, I want to challenge you out of the world mindset and out of this value system of the world that sees you as loving the people that you are in the body with as optional. Now, you can't, now let's, let's, let's deal with some demonic thinking, ready? We don't want to partner with demons, right? All right. I can love them, but not like them. True or false? That's demonic. You better not ever say that. That's not, even pop, that's not even possible. You can't authentically love anybody. Love is everything. Love is all of it. Love is not withholding anything. Love, the perfect kind of love is Jesus didn't hold anything back. He gave it all to you. And let me let you in on a little secret. He isn't going to give you anything more than he's already given you because he gave you everything. All right? But understanding that... Um, oh, right on. All right, so understanding that God wants to deliver us of the mindset that loving and functioning on behalf of everyone in this body is optional. God wants to deliver us of the mindset that we go to church. God wants to deliver us from the mindset that the church better offer me a superior product than, than the one down the street that is in competition with us, or I will leave this church and go to that church. The Lord needs to deliver us into the revelation of where He's already positioned us, which means in a kingdom where to the least of these that the world would call, I become their servant. And as we begin to start talking about gifts, as I believe Peter told us, we serve one another with spiritual gifts. Gifts are the way into serving the people next to you and not showing off and not needing to operate in gifts for love, but operating in gifts out of or from love. So stand with me this evening, and let's do a couple of declarations. But I feel like I really like that song, so I want to hear it again. So as Allison sings that song again, I want to challenge you for just maybe one or two more times through, and then I'm going to lead us into some declarations where we are going to break the spirit of the world. We're going to break the mindsets. But as the Lord, as she's singing through this song, here's, here's your job. Don't just experience what Allison's doing. Partner with the Holy Spirit and say, when I get ready to pray in a few moments, what am I breaking off? What mindsets am I giving you permission to come tear down in my life right now? Because if we want a real functioning body here, we got to get delivered of the things that are the greatest threat to it. All right, so as she sings, Holy Spirit, I just pray this right now. Spirit of truth, come right now. 
spirit of truth begin to move all throughout this room. Spirit of truth, come and deliver us from the value systems that we brought from the world. Begin to help us to shut out the noise of the world and enter into the gentle voice of our Father who's calling us into perfect love and perfect oneness. As Allison begins to sing, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and show us what we need to lay down and displace with truth this evening. Go ahead, Allison.